c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. And fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And today we're doing a very special episode, by which I mean I don't have to read for it, Janelle. What? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if this is like something our readers have not noticed, but we we switch who does who does all the reading. Mm. This has been our format since day one. <laughs> not only do we switch week to week which one of us narrates the topic the other person actually doesn't do any research whatsoever <laughs> oh Jessica's <laughs> topics I find out about them when you do <laughs> it's all brand new information for me too so she could be disgusted in real time <laughs> oh yeah those rea- the reactions on this episode are very real so this week it's my turn to be the nerd and it's Jessica's turn to be the peanut gallery Yay! Let me get my popcorn. <laughs> but yeah, so Jessica was spared having to write 14 pages of notes this week. Hold on to your butts and the northern half of your city, because this week we are talking about the Halifax explosion. Yay! I mean, I don't know that that's the noise I would make, because it turns out this was way more horrific than I thought it was going to be. I, uh, that was the sound of the shrapnel as it fell. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, we're starting offensive. We normally ramp up to offensive, but we're... All right. Right out of the gate. Good. I, li- I like to think that I'm covered by your Halifax- Haligonian privilege. Like, if you have... You have Halifax explosion privileges, and I'm hiding behind you as a shield. <laughs> I'm the human shield because I had a relative die in the explosion. So, absolutely. This is Jessica's like <laughs> get out of jail free card. One hundred percent. Hey, don't don't look at me like that. I have a friend whose relative was atomically unraveled at the Halifax explosion. <laughs> if you want to ever make the Halifax explosion jokes in one of your live stand up sets, you have to like bring me to the show so that I can physically stand in front of you. I need you sitting on stage. And you need to be dual-wielding lobsters with just a donaire shoved in your mouth. <laughs> I think that's racist, but I don't know. <laughs> don't know enough to be certain. <laughs> it would be offensive if it weren't so true. <laughs> Amazing. Strong start. Strong start. But yeah, the Halifax Harbor explosion of 1917 is significant for a couple of reasons. For starters, it's not only one of the greatest disasters in Canadian history, it's one of the greatest disasters in world history. So that's fun. Which is amazing. There's been a lot of disasters. As humans, we've blown a lot of shit up. At the time, it was actually the largest man-made explosion in human history. A title that it held until the dropping of the atomic bomb. Yeah, wow. That is fun. Mm. Oh, were we also bombed by the Americans? Uh, the Americans were more involved in the explosion than we were. The The explosives that blew up the city actually came from the United States. So. Oh, good. They blew us up via the French, which is an interesting way to go about it. <laughs> um, we're we're going to get into it. 
The question of who was at fault for the explosion is actually much more complicated than I realized, so it's gonna have to be kind of a draw-your-own-conclusions thing, because there are, there are several schools of thought about whose fault this was. But to this day, the Halifax explosion remains the largest accidental man-made explosion in human history. I, I don't think anyone's rushing to top it. No! And they shouldn't. They really shouldn't. It's not a record you want to beat. The Halifax explosion is also a fun topic, because I happen to be recording this from the blast radius of the Halifax explosion. Ah, <laughs> uh, history. It is. My apartment building is distinctly post-war, because whatever was on this street before 1917 became rubble. Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing in my neighborhood survived the blast. I live in what is called the Total Annihilation Zone on maps. Um, that sounds like a band my boyfriend would join. Total Annihilation Zone? That's a great name for a band. Total Annihilation Zone is an excellent name for a band, but it's also where I live. But it has to be a very specific kind of band. Y you can't name a folk group that. No, 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 no. No, that's, that's, that's a band where people wear corpse paint and are mad at their dads. Like, this is... <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you can't have a healthy relationship with your father, but it helps. It helps if you don't. <laughs> but yeah, everything that I can see out my window right now used to be a field of debris and death, which is interesting. I'm going to have weird dreams tonight because this whole neighborhood is definitely haunted. Like, super <laughs> mega haunted. Ghosts just packed ass to elbow. I, I, like, I live between the worst port of the explosion and the graveyard where all the explosion and Titanic victims are buried. So there's there's a lot of ghosts. But despite the significance of the Halifax explosion, it's kind of largely forgotten by most people. Like, Jessica and I are Canadians. Uh, I never learned about it in school beyond, like, it happened. It was kind of given to me as, like, a history fun fact. It was never something that we learned about in depth. It was kind of like a, like a, oh... Here's the thing that happened. All right, time for four months of Louis Riel. Like, it it was never. <laughs> time for homoerotic portage adventures. <laughs> yeah, it was it really. We spent a year and a half on Russia and like two years on France. We really never dove into the Halifax explosion. Even as a person who is from this region, uh, I never learned, I didn't grow up in Halifax, I grew up in Western Canada, which is where I met Jessica, and, you know. <laughs> it's where she discovered me, under a rock. <laughs> Did I discover you, or was I ensnared by you? I'm still, I'm still thinking about the terminology. Pulled onto the rocks by my son or his voice. <laughs> my parents grew up in this area in... Do I want to say how old my parents are? My parents were in high school in the 60s and 70s in, in this part of the world, and even they really didn't learn very much about it. My my mom knows, like, the bare minimum. I took her to the Halifax Explosion graveyard, and I've taken her to the memorial, and she's like, yeah, I really couldn't even tell you how long ago this happened. It's, it's virtually unknown outside of Canada, and even within Canada, exposure is pretty minimal. So that's why you're going to learn about it in a I don't know, three-hour offensive podcast special. But we've actually been planning this episode for a very long time. A lot of research goes into a topic like this. And so we didn't intend for this to be a topical episode. We absolutely did not. We did not, in fact, time this for the no, accidental no. 
detonation of tons and tons of agricultural fertilizer in Beirut. <laughs> like, we've had this on the schedule as a topic for months, and it just so happens that it's now relevant. As most of you are probably aware, there was a horrific explosion in Beirut, Lebanon, that has claimed now, I think, 190 lives. It caused untold damage to the city of Beirut, and it's going to have unbelievable impact on Lebanon. It's not good. It's not good. One of the interesting things that's come out of the Lebanon explosion is that I've actually seen a lot of comparisons being made between Beirut and the Halifax explosion. There aren't that many major explosions. So we have to go back pretty far. Yeah, I mean, these are both man-made accidental explosions in urban centers that were caused by improper storage of explosives. So they are very similar. So I think a lot of people over the last couple of weeks since Beirut happened have learned about the Halifax explosion for the first time as a comparison to Beirut. Like I said, the Halifax explosion is, is, an is a historical event that doesn't get a lot of traction. It's it, You don't meet a lot of history buffs who are super into the Halifax explosion. Despite the fact that it's fucking gross. And there's a lot. This half of the episodes I don't think needs a content warning. This is going to be a lot of like naval history and boat stuff, but the second half of the episode, which is about the impact of it, has like every possible content warning. It's you can't fire iron shrapnel into an urban center at 23 times the speed of sound and not have some devastating medical consequences. So, you know, stay tuned. But one of the things that's been really interesting about seeing these comparisons between Beirut and Halifax is that what you may not realize is that these differ in the force, size, and impact of the explosion. Halifax was a much bigger explosion. It's hard to estimate the exact size, and I've seen a lot of estimates and a lot of people who, who don't seem to understand how you estimate the, the impact of an explosion. It's not The force of an explosion is not always an exact proportion to how much fuel set it off. But most of the estimates I've seen seem to agree that the force of the Beirut explosion was about 1.2 kilotons. So the Beirut explosion has killed now 190 people, it's injured at least 4,000, and it's left many people homeless. The Halifax explosion was a 2.9 kiloton explosion. It killed 1,600 people on impact. It killed 300 more in the following days, injured more than 9,000, and it leveled half a city in an instant. And this is not me, to be very clear, this is not me dunking on Beirut for not having a worse explosion. This is not a catastrophe pissing contest. This is me giving some perspective on the size of the Halifax explosion. Because we don't have any documentation of the Halifax explosion on film. There's no videos of it. There's, there's a handful of grainy still images of the dust cloud that was kicked up by the explosion. And there's pictures of the aftermath. But the Halifax explosion took place in 1917. Nobody had a film camera rolling when the actual explosion took place. Nobody had time to go to the cupboard, fetch the the old derigotype, and uh, to set it up in the front yard. They were ba they were basically just instantaneously melted. So you know, <laughs> and I mean, and the film was so expensive in 1917. Nobody was just rolling their camera all the time just because. You know, today you can film gigabytes upon gigabytes of high definition footage for free. Like it's it's no big deal. But back in the day, like nobody just had their camera filming when this explosion went off. So we don't have any like documentation. Like I said, there's there's like one or two grainy photos of the dust cloud, um, but they're taken from very far away. 
and there's nothing really in these photos. There's like, there's trees, but there's not a lot of points of comparison. So it's very difficult to understand from looking at the photos how big the explosion was, especially if you aren't familiar with the Halifax area. Like me telling you what streets were destroyed is not going to do anything if you don't live here. Everybody at this point has seen videos of the Beirut explosions. That's a 1.2 kiloton explosion. Keep in mind when we're talking about this, we were talking about an explosion that was more than twice its size. So, you know, it's unfathomably enormous. So yeah, so that's the cheerful addressing of the fact that this accidentally became a topical episode when it was really supposed to be a like, hey, here's a thing that happened more than 100 years ago and hasn't really come up since. This could be fun and outside of the news. Yeah, this, no, never mind. Apparently not. Honestly, we do our best to be as irrelevant as possible. Generally, yes. Generally, we don't take on modern cases. I don't know if you've noticed. You get away with a lot more when you do historical topics, because... We've got a fucked up sense of humor, and we laugh at corpses. We prefer those corpses not only to be cold, we prefer their parents to also be cold. (laughs) A lot of the cases we cover, nobody is left alive who really has, like, a stake in them. And also, when we cover true crime and stuff... All the documents have been released, typically, because everybody involved in these cases is dead, and their children are dead, and their grandchildren are old. There's definitely, like, survivors of Halifax explosion victims. Like I said, I myself have an ancestor who died in the Halifax explosion. But we're so far removed at this point that it was less of a sore spot until three weeks ago. And now, apocalyptic explosions are in the news again. So, uh, on Fat, French, and Fabulous, we take the controversial stance that Large-scale explosions in urban centers, bad. We shall get in the papers, Janelle. (laughs) Mass death, bad. That's our stance. Before we can get into the explosion itself, we have to begin our story the same way that every epic tragedy begins, which is with a basic lesson in Canadian geography. (laughs) So, I'm going to tell you right now, this whole story is going to be a lot easier to follow if you have a basic understanding of what Halifax physically looks like. Find your phone, pull up a map, just look at the shape of the Halifax Harbor, because we're going to be talking about a lot of geographical points. So, the city of Halifax, which is the capital of Nova Scotia, sits on the Atlantic coast of Nova Scotia and is built around the Halifax Harbor, which is one of the largest and deepest natural harbors in the world. That harbor? Thick. <laughs> she's, a, she's a thick girl. I don't know. But a harbor is basically like a place where the land juts in. So they're very sheltered. You can park boats there overnight and be reasonably certain that they'll be they'll be there in the morning. That's actually what harbor means. It's like harbor fugitive. It's harboring ships. Yeah, it's it's sheltering them. It's protecting them. So Halifax was placed here on purpose because of the harbor. The largest harbor turns out to be a very controversial question. And there's a lot of factors. There's this people like fight over this. People who are deeply invested in this. But generally speaking. The largest harbour in the world is considered to be the Sydney Harbour in Australia. But although the Halifax Harbour is not physically as, like, wide as the Sydney Harbour, it has a deeper clearance at low tide. At low tide, the shallowest parts of the Sydney Harbour are 3 metres deep. At low tide, the lowest parts of the Halifax Harbour are 18 metres deep. For our American audience, that's 59 feet. So at the shallowest port of our harbour... At low tide, which is the shallowest part of the day, it's still 60 feet deep. This is a very deep harbor. If you're ever in Halifax, please don't swim in it. Oh my god, you'll die. (laughs) (laughs) It's deep, it's cold, and the city has been putting its sewage directly into the harbor untreated for like 400 years. 
<laughs> it is shitty in many wet ways, some of them literal. We stopped a couple years ago, but we did it for a long time. I wouldn't go in there. The deepest part of the Halifax Harbor, called the Bedford Basin, is up to 71 meters deep, which is 232 feet. So, it's real deep. Like, we've lost boats on the bottom of the Halifax Harbor and never found them again. It's a very, very deep harbor. Don't drop your phone in it. I can give you that advice. You will absolutely never get it back, but... The harbor runs between two cities, or at least it did in 1917. It juts into the land, kind of at a northwestern angle. So if you're entering the harbor, to the left is Halifax, and to your right is Dartmouth. In 2006, those cities were actually dissolved. Halifax no longer technically exists. It's now the regional municipality of Halifax. So Dartmouth, Halifax, and all the small towns in between are sort of the same city now. It's kind of like New York City with different boroughs. People today in the region obviously still make a distinction between Dartmouth and Halifax, but back in the day they were two cities, two different mayors, two different everything. But when you enter the Halifax Harbor, you go into the harbor, there's Halifax on one side, Dartmouth on the other, and from the harbor, the water narrows, and that part is called, and wait for this, the Narrows. Creative naming. So once you go through the Narrows, the water opens back up again, and it becomes the Bedford Basin. So Halifax runs the length of the harbor and the Narrows, and so does Dartmouth. The Basin is kind of its own thing. But this quirk of geography has historically made Halifax one of the most important ports on the eastern seaboard. It's one of the only harbors in the world where you can move really big boats around at all times of the day, and park really big boats, like, right up to port which is a very big deal if you make your living on really big boats. So it is basically just a, a natural gateway onto the North American continent. It is. It always has been. Yeah, to the point where, like, Halifax, despite being, you know, like, Nova Scotia's never been, like, a huge deal in international politics, or at the very least in the way we understand international politics, but if you go deeper into the logistics of things like the the American Revolutionary War, the Halifax Harbor was incredibly important logistically for the British. To this day, if you are in a navy that sails on the Atlantic, you've probably been to Halifax. Everything comes in and out of Halifax, even still. And also, like, where we physically are in the ocean, we have kind of a straight shot to New York, we're a straight shot to the Caribbean, and we're a straight shot to the major European ports. The way that the ocean works, you have to kind of go past Halifax. If you're coming from Europe, you have to go past us to go to New York. You don't go straight down, you don't go straight across. So we've always been a natural refueling point, a point to take on or leave crew or cargo. So Halifax has always been one of the most important shipping points in the world. Uh, Halifax's location and geography have also made it a critical strategic location for the military, especially during wartime. So from the time of its founding, Halifax is a garrison city. This has always been like half city, half military base. It still kind of is. A lot of Canadian armed forces and Canadian naval stuff is here. My grandparents met here while serving in the Canadian Navy. Fun fact. So romantic. Rum sodomy in the lash. Mmm, fun. Fun, fun, fun stuff. But yes. <laughs> I'm just saying your grandparents were kinky. Uh, you know what? Sure. Probably. They're weird as hell. My my grandfather got dementia in his old age. He passed away last year from from complications of dementia. We went to go see him in the last couple weeks of his life. And when people have dementia, you just kind of ask them stuff to see what they'll say because they've got no idea who you are. They don't know what's going on. But you just ask them stuff. You're just a friendly stranger. 
You can ask somebody with dementia the same question four times in a row and get very different answers. So my mom was kind of like fucking with her dad. And uh, she would just ask him the same shit over and over again to see what he would say. And he kept asking her, where do you live? And my mom would say, Halifax. And the first time he goes, oh, I met your mother in Halifax. Like he was having a bit of a lucid moment. And then five minutes later, he goes, where are you from? My mom says, Halifax. He goes, oh, I met a lot of women in Halifax. Ooh. I was like, okay, enough. No, ew, 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 ew. Too ew, much, ew, Grandpa, no, too no much. Too much, Grandpa. <laughs> too much. Too much. So apparently Halifax was a real place to find floozies in the 1960s. Didn't need to know. Um, sure, girls. But back when the city was founded in the 1700s, this was originally an English stronghold specifically built to piss off the French. Um, it's true. The, the point of Halifax has always been to like intimidate French people and keep them from taking over Nova 100%. Scotia. 100%. In early Canada, the French had like a very strong alliance with the local Mi'kmaq people, which is the indigenous people native to this to this land. They've always had a very strong connection to Acadians. There's a lot of dark-haired Acadians and a lot of blue-eyed native people in this area. So the English found this very intimidating and decided that they would just make with the genocide and with the military stronghold. Park just a huge-ass base here. I'm not going to get into 300 years of incredibly racist history, but it worked. England won. Nova Scotia has been English forever. Um, or ever since. <laughs> it was It was definitely not English forever. It was Mi'kmaq forever, and then now it's British. Super Mi'kmaq. <laughs> it was super Mi'kmaq, and then genocide. Sorry, guys. Halifax is also a critical entry point, as Jessica said, to the to the rest of Canada and to North America as a whole, um, especially in the days before air travel. Halifax was Canada's Ellis Island for the longest time. If you wanted to immigrate to Canada, you went through Pier 21, which was our exact equivalent of Ellis Island. That's where immigrants came. They were processed. You showed your paperwork. Is Pier 21 at all related to the department store? It is not. <laughs> it is not. It is... You did not immigrate through Canada <laughs> through a department store. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean like, oh my gosh, were they going through like the very first Pier 21 getting like some tacky hoodies sewed by children from Indonesia. I mean, was it named after no. it? Like the Hudson Bay Company. I don't know. Our American audience will not, I don't think, know what this is. I don't think Pier 1 Imports is a store in America. But yeah, there's there's a Canadian store called Pier 1 Imports. It's for rich ladies who want live, laugh, love home decor. I have no idea if it's named after the immigration pier. Hudson Bay used to own Canada, so like, I don't know. It could be anything. Could be anything. So the way that the, the Halifax is shaped makes it ideal for defense. That entry point of the harbor is funnel-shaped, and there's a lot of very large islands in the mouth of the harbor, so it's very easy to shoot at people trying to get into the harbor if we don't want them in the harbor. Handy. And then it leads to the Narrows. The Narrows is 1,600 meters long, 1.6 kilometers, and it is 440 meters wide. So it, it's really not that big. Mm. Um, is that why it's called the Narrows? Could be. Could be. And like I said, it's 18 meters deep at the shallowest point. So you can have two large ships in the Narrows passing by each other. They just have to be careful about it. Mm. And then once you come through the Narrows, you're in the enormous Bedford Basin. So during times of war, this is a great place to keep allied boats from all over the world. Provided that you don't, and this may be a spoiler, smash explosive boats into each other. You know. Hypothetically. As an idea. Hypothetically. Don't do that. 
But in the years leading up to World War I, Halifax was struggling. The city went through a major economic downturn in 1890, as local factories were struggling to compete with new competition in central Canada. Ontario got big and we lost. Canada also didn't have its own navy at the end of the 19th century. Britain had always used Halifax as a naval garrison, and Canadians who wanted to serve in the navy served in the Royal Navy, which is the British Navy. We didn't have our own for the longest time. There's no need. Daddy Britain provided. <laughs> we didn't even have separate citizenship until the end of World War II. Yeah, we, we, we were meshed with... This is what happens when you don't have a temper tantrum and throw all your tea in the harbor, mm. is that you get... Big Daddy Britain gives you boats until 1905. <laughs> but in 1905, Britain made the decision to pull out of Halifax. There was kind of nothing happening. There was no reason for them to stay. So for five years, Canada just had no navy, and um, the Canadian government did establish the Royal Canadian Navy in 1910, which was founded and established in Halifax. Fuck Vancouver, I guess. You're on your own. We weren't quite as concerned about the Japanese just yet. To this day, though, the majority of Canada's navy is here in Halifax. It's, it's concentrated in the Atlantic. Most of the really big boats are here. It is worth noting, though, that when the Royal Canadian Navy was founded in 1910, we couldn't actually afford to buy any boats. <laughs> so, the Navy didn't have any seaworthy ships at the time. So, we were a Navy in name only. <laughs> we were missing some essential components. But, like, that's not even a rarity in Canadian naval history. One of the big jokes when I was a kid in the 90s was about how the West Edmonton Mall had a bigger working submarine corps than the Canadian Navy for a while. <laughs> I think that was, like, like a joke, but also true. Yeah, no, it was completely true. <laughs> like, it was definitely a punchline, but it was not itself a joke. <laughs> there, there was, like, a, a recurring joke on, on This Hour is 22 Minutes, which is, like, the Canadian SNL. Oh no, like, here come the Canadians armed with plastic knives and forks. Canada has never had a well-funded military. <laughs> But yeah, so we had we had a navy, didn't have boats. We were working on that. It's this, all the sources say we specifically didn't have any seaworthy warships. So I assume we just got like some hand me downs from Britain that were sort of leaky. I don't know. Couldn't do much with it though. We we were basically wearing our much older brother's half moth eating socks. <laughs> Pretty much. The Canadian government also tried to improve Halifax's overall economy. They poured a lot of money into harbour and waterfront development in the hopes of kind of revitalizing the city, bringing it back. It wasn't until the outbreak of World War I, though, that Halifax really came into its own. It was the declaration of war that put Halifax on the map and kind of transformed it into the city that it is today, as like a city that people recognize and don't just blank on. Honestly, if Americans remember more than three of our cities, I'm proud of them on principle. <laughs> Every time I told Americans in New York that I was from Canada, they would say, oh, Toronto or Vancouver, as if those were the options that you have to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta pick. See, every time I cross it, there's always at least one person. When I tell them I'm from Vancouver, Canada, they always say, I didn't know Van Canada had a Vancouver. And you're like, you're in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> you're right across the border <laughs> I love it I love it I, I just love the look on even Canadians faces though where it's like 
I'm like, oh, I've lived all over Canada. I'm like, oh, where have you lived? I'm like, oh, you know, Moncton, Winnipeg, Edmonton. They're like, wow, you've lived in all of bad Canada. <laughs> like, you you haven't lived in any part of good Canada. I'm like, yeah, all right. You just, you unerringly <laughs> I know. pick the parts of Canada that everyone else makes fun of. You, yeah, you I, like it's, a bullseye. <laughs> onto people's <laughs> least favorite cities. I did. I'm just making a making a grand tour of unglamorous Canada. See, and then you then you move to New York City, you know, like the jewel of 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 the Americas. And then you're always just like, "Oh yeah, New York's so much better than Canadian cities." And I'm just like, "The ones you've lived in." <laughs> and sure, yeah, all the Listen. other ones. <laughs> but especially those. <laughs> Moncton is the glittering gem of New Brunswick. <laughs> it is it is the sweaty armpit of the Maritimes. Halifax is like the first Canadian city I've lived in where you're like, I live in Halifax. And people are like, that's a nice city. I like it there. <laughs> Such a low bar. <laughs> it's pretty. It has history. There's some old buildings there. I like it. You're like, oh, yeah. moving up in the world. <laughs> Much better than oof. Sorry for your loss. I, I'm just proud to live in a place where people don't suck in air from between their teeth. Yep, that's what we aim for. But yeah, so the the fact that Halifax is now a city that people are like it's nice. I like it there. We kind of owe it to World War One a little bit. Um, since, like I said, the Royal Canadian Navy didn't actually have boats. And boats are considered somewhat important for a navy during a war. The British Royal Navy returned to Halifax and reestablished itself there in 1915. But the jobs came back, which was important. Everything for the war, people, goods, ships, weapons, everything, had to pass through Halifax during the World War I years. All neutral ships traveling across the Atlantic had to report to Halifax for inspection before they were allowed to continue to their destination, just to make sure they weren't like Germans dressed up as Norwegians. <laughs> so if you wanted to go to America uh, from Europe, you had to come through Halifax. It also wasn't safe for boats to travel across the Atlantic alone, especially ones that contained important supplies. Unaccompanied, completely unchaperoned. Unchaperoned boats. Oh, the cheek. Yeah, no. <laughs> Getting up to any sort of hanky-panky in the middle of the Atlantic. It's dangerous to go alone. Take this. <laughs> um, yeah, so a convoy system was set up to cross the Atlantic. If you were carrying strategic things, you couldn't go out of doors by yourself like a hussy. You had to travel in convoys. Going out in that shirt while a steamliner? <laughs> Look how low she's sitting on the water. <laughs> slut. Um, I am going to slut shame several boats throughout this script. I actually, I'm not even kidding. That's part of the script. We'll see. <laughs> Like, whenever, when they heard that the Titanic sank, they're like, oh, but what was she wearing? Where was she sitting on the waterline? Jessica, you just can't prevent yourself from making sexualized comments about mass forms of transportation. <laughs> I swear to God, you do this every time. <laughs> I just like an efficient form of locomotion, Janelle. Don't judge me. <laughs> Things were getting steamy back in the day in the shipping lanes. Jesus. I'm gonna find Jessica, like, just uh, frantically humping the Dartmouth Towers. <laughs> <laughs> just just Jessica rubbing herself on a ferry. <laughs> this is... 
Just gonna sneak up to the lighthouse, start sending out Morse code messages declaring my affections. <laughs> when I catch you, like, clapping the cheeks of the Halifax fairy, I'm throwing you into the ocean. <laughs> that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, German U-boat attacks were a huge concern in World War One, especially, like, Chanel, Chanel, in and Chanel, around Chanel, Halifax, Chanel, because Chanel, it was not exactly Chanel, a Chanel, secret. Chanel. Hmm? Motorboating. <laughs> no, if I find if I find you motorboating a motorboat, one, you're gonna die, Jessica. Those are very powerful blades. You're gonna become chunks. And two, no. <laughs> I've always wanted to end life for romance as a bobelaise. You make an honest woman out of that motorboat, Jessica. You ask it to marry you. I'll, it'll make me an honest woman and soup. Yes, mm. also a chunky stew. <laughs> But Halifax became a muster point for all transatlantic convoys. If you wanted to cross the Atlantic to go bring crucial supplies back to your country, merchant ships and transport ships had to gather in the Bedford Basin until enough boats had come together to warrant a convoy, and they would be escorted across the ocean by a British naval accompaniment. So everybody was going through Halifax. If you were a soldier being shipped overseas for deployment, you had to report to Halifax to meet your ship that would bring you to the war. And the wounded returning to North America from the front lines on hospital ships were generally taken straight to Halifax and were often treated in the city itself at a new military hospital that was constructed for that purpose. Since, like I said, everybody was freaking out about German U-boats, which was actually not really paranoia, German U-boats really did attack boats near the entrance to the harbor. They actually attacked and sank a Haligonian ship right in the harbor entrance. Apparently, fishermen used to collect floating mines planted by German U-boats and turn them in for 25 bucks each. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of money in 1917 money, but, like, <laughs> not enough to risk putting a fucking mine on your boat. Holy shit. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's, it's a little bit more of a high-risk version of collecting cans off the side of the highway. Yeah, you've got fucking nards of titanium. You're picking up U-boat mines and just chuck them in them in the back, like, for the reward. Holy shit. But they, they used to plant submerged mines in and around the harbor. They used to have to have mine-sweeping boats go and, and try to find them. It wasn't exactly a secret that everything came in and out of Halifax, so the harbor really was a target. And there was great concern that the U-boats would sneak into the Bedford Basin and attack all of the ships that were moored there, because they're basically sitting ducks. So to protect the ships in the basin from U-boat attacks, anti-submarine nets were strung across the basin entrance. These are basically huge nets made from thick steel cables that had, like, floaties on one side so that they would cover the entrances of the basin and prevent sneaky U-boats from getting in. And they took these submarine nets extremely seriously. They went up at a certain time, and once they were up, they were up. Nobody was coming in or out. You had to wait until morning. The city was such a likely target for attacks because of its importance to the Navy that Halifax actually had a full blackout system for all of World War I. All lights had to be covered between one hour after sunset and until an hour before dawn. And they were not fucking around with this. This policy went into effect in 1916 till the end of the war. And the penalty for violations was $5,000 in fucking 1916 money Ooh. or up to five years in prison. You did not fuck with Blackout. Huh, no reading with a flashlight under the covers, or you're going to the Bay House. <laughs> I mean, you can, but you gotta have your window covers on, or we may all die in a German air raid. You know, 
Just a very high-stakes citywide game of hide-and-seek. It really was. But the newfound importance of Halifax as a port city in World War I brought jobs, money, and growth to the city. So by 1917, the population of Halifax was somewhere around 60 to 65,000 people. It's never really possible to nail down a population in a port town. It's always kind of a range. But that was pretty respectable for 1917 Canada. Halifax today is about 300,000 people. So we're not actually that large of a city. But in 1917, Halifax was booming, figuratively, and soon. <laughs> Literally. I apologize for nothing. I'm proud of you, Janelle. When you. you have an ancestor who died in the explosion, you can make these jokes. <laughs> Nobody else. I will hide behind the mist of, of my forebears. <laughs> Literally mist. My ancestor was never found. No piece of him was ever recovered. Um, <laughs> poor dude was probably vaporized. If you didn't turn up, like, if they never found you, you died on impact. Like, you died immediately. Just assumed aerosolized. Yikes. Yikes. Since the Halifax Narrows were, you know, narrow, there were very strict rules in place for ships traveling through them. So boats had to travel at a speed of no greater than five knots when in the Narrows. This is 9.2 kilometers an hour or 5.7 miles per hour. So this is, this is a brisk jog. This is quite slow. No one wants to play a rousing game of bumper steamliners. Ships were also required to hug the right side of the strait as close as they could. In seafaring terms, they had to hang to starboard. We're going to use the terms port and starboard a lot. For those of you who don't live in a place that has boats, port side refers to the left side of the ship if you're facing the bow. Starboard refers to the right side of the ship if you're facing the bow. Always. The reason that port and starboard are used on a boat instead of left and right is because left and right is relative. Port and starboard never changes. When you need to bark orders at people who work on ships or you're going to hit something, you don't have time to be like, wait, is it my left or your left? Which way are you facing? It, it gives everybody uh, a consistent point. And it allows you to distinguish between personal right versus, like, the ship right. But not the ship right, because that's the guy who built it. <laughs> <laughs> That was a good pun. I like that. I'm on, I'm on my toes. But uh, starboard is not your right-hand side. It is the right-hand side of the ship. And port is always the left-hand side of the ship. This is the side of the ship that you, when you pull up to a port, you pull up on the left. But in seafaring terms, ships were required to pass each other port to port. So if you were going to pass another boat, it always had to be on your left. So when you were coming in, you had to hang to the Dartmouth side. And then when you were coming out, you had to hang to the Halifax side. This was not negotiable. These rules were not put in place to be mean. There are some very large ships that were going in and out of the Bedford Basin, and collisions at sea are generally not good. On December 3rd, 1917, a ship called the SS Emo, that's I-M-O, not E-M-O, this is a Norwegian name, it's not like the kind of kid who listened to My Chemical Romance in 2006, the SS Emo arrived in Halifax. She had a crew of 39 men, and she was led by Captain Hackenfrom. The SS Emo had originally been called the SS Runic when it launched in 1889. Created by the White Star Line, which is actually the British company that built and operated the Titanic, the SS Runic was a cargo liner that could hold up to 12 passengers in addition to a great deal of cargo. In its early days, it was mostly used to ship livestock. And for the record, SS stands for steamship. 
every ship has initials, and that's what that one is. In 1912, she was sold to a Norwegian company called the Southern Pacific Whaling Company to serve as a whaling supply ship, and her home port at the time of the explosion was the city that is now known as Oslo, Norway. In 1917, the SS Emo was chartered by the Belgian Relief Fund. This was an international organization that shipped food and essential supplies to Belgium and northeastern France because they were under German occupation at the time. This was a boat that was uh, humanitarian. This was this was not a boat that was actively engaged in the war effort. It was very much against the rules of engagement and also kind of a huge dick move to sink a relief vessel. So the SS Emo had the words Belgian Relief painted on its side in huge letters to prevent attacks. It's a dick move. It's like shooting a medic. I'm just here to bring food to the French. I mean, I guess if you were just like, you know what, fuck Belgian people in particular, you might sink it anyway. But usually Belgians don't inspire quite that amount of hatred. (laughs) Them and their waffles and their propensity for putting mayonnaise on fries. Speaking Flemish, who do they think they are? (laughs) Disgusting. I mean, unless you're from the Congo, in which case, you know, fair enough. Fair enough. Everybody from the Congo is allowed to hate all of Europe. They should. I encourage it. <laughs> the SS Emo had left Europe empty, or in shipping terms, what is called in ballast, and she was traveling to New York City to pick up a cargo of essential food and supplies. Since she was a neutral ship, however, she had to report to Halifax for inspection before she could be cleared to go on to New York. The SS Emo received clearance to leave on the morning of December 5th, but she required refueling and the shipment of coal for the SS Emo did not arrive until late that afternoon. The refueling ran so late that by the time it was finished, the anti-submarine nets had already been raised for the night, making departure impossible. She would have to wait until morning to leave, which put her behind schedule. Uh, That same evening, which was December the 5th, 1917, a French ship called the SS Mont Blanc arrived at the Halifax Harbor. The SS Mont Blanc was a freighter ship that had been built in 1899 and had sailed under the French flag for its whole career, registered to the Saint-Nazaire port in Brittany, France. In 1917, she was owned by a French state-owned shipping line called the Compagnie Générale Transatlantique that handled most of France's wartime shipments in World War I. So, the Mont Blanc was, and I shit you not, this is a real nautical term, She's what's called a common tramp steamer. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was going to slut shame a boat, and I, f- I fucking delivered, did I not? <laughs> We're slut shaming a boat. Um, a, just so a common tramp steamer. <laughs> I shit you not, a tramp steamer or a tramp freighter is a real fucking term. This means that she did not have a dedicated schedule or port of call. She just took, like, you could just rent her for anything. Um, and I'm aware of how terrible this sounds. Um, the Mont Blanc would just do any kind of random cargo run that was available. There was no steady work. She had no regular route. She'd just let anything inside her. Um, <laughs> I did not invent just this Just some terms. kind of loose, scheduled floozy. <laughs> She's a floozy ship. You can fill her with whatever you want. Um, <laughs> as long as you pay her. <laughs> I I did not invent this term. I swear to God, it's not my fault. <laughs> Just long, long nautical history of slut-shaming boats. That's a boat that has no 
set run, no set port of call. They just they do whatever. They just travel the world. That has to be that has to be a shared etymology. It has to be. I I think sailors are just kind of shitty to women, or at least they were <laughs> in the nineteenth century. There's there's a lot of misogyny in the naval world, right down to the fact that boats are always female. Who boy. If you if you try to refer to a boat by gender neutral terms in Nova Scotia, you're gonna get some looks. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you misgender my boat? Boats are female. I don't make the rules. <laughs> <laughs> English does not have grammatical gender right up until we're talking about boats and cars. It it literally doesn't matter if the boat is a battleship. It doesn't matter if the boat uh, has a masculine name. Nope. The the USS John McCain is a girl. It's incorrect to refer to a ship as anything but she. This is, and I actually know why this is, this is probably because in romance languages, the word for ship is always feminine. Fun fact. We, we took no other advice from the French, but this one, yep. Just someone looked at a big old steam liner and was like, that's definitely a lady. Big bottom, <laughs> difficult to get out of the port. There's, like, the people have, like, spilled a lot of ink, like, writing about the fact that, like, boats are always female in English vernacular. It's incorrect to refer to a boat as anything other than female. Like, you don't call a boat it, you call it she. People have, like, waxed poetic about this. They're like, well, the hold of a boat represents the womb. No, it's not that deep. In French, boats are female. Like, it's... Uh, they just are. So are chairs, so are tables. This is just a piece of grammar borrowed from French, Italian, and... And Portuguese. It's it's not that deep, fam. Sometimes it's not that complicated. But yeah, so if a boat doesn't have a common schedule, we call it a tramp boat. I don't know. A Boats common are sexist. I don't know, tramp I don't know what to tell you. Sailors sailors say some shit. The Mont Blanc was also significantly smaller than the SS Emo. The Mont Blanc was 44 feet wide and 320 feet long. The Emo was 45 feet wide and 430 feet long. So they're about the same width, but the emo is long and skinny. So at the time of the explosion, and I mean, this is going to make a lot of sense, the SS Mont Blanc had been chartered to pick up a very large shipment of military explosives in New York City and deliver them to France. The ship had to stop over in Halifax to join up with a convoy in order to make the Atlantic crossing. So when I say that the Mont Blanc was carrying a lot of explosives, I mean that it was carrying a fucking epic shitload of explosives. It was carrying 2,300 tons of picric acid, which is an explosive substance that is more powerful but less stable than TNT. Excellent. That's what I like to see in my explosives. More power, less stability. <laughs> I like my explosives the way I like my men. Unpredictable. <laughs> I'm joking. My boyfriend spent 12 hours Marie condoing his closet today. I'm, I'm over that. He's is, he is a sweet, gentle man, as befitted your coming maturity. Young Janelle dated men who broke into construction sites at night. So, you know, we've come a long way. I mean, at this point, I should start picking up the slack and start dating some unscrupulous gentlemen who don't believe in carrying a transit pass and simply hop fare. You've got to do it. You've got to do it for both of us. Be strong. <laughs> Picric acid is not really used very often today. It's safe and stable when it's a liquid, but it becomes extremely explosive when it's dry. It, it crystallizes. It was commonly used for bombs in World War I, but it has since fallen out of favor because, you know, it's incredibly unstable and powerful. 
If you want a, a fun YouTube rabbit hole, you should definitely look up Picric Acid. Because there's this consistent theme where, like, high schools would buy it for kids to play with in, like, the 80s. And then they forgot it in the backs of closets. Ooh. So every couple of years, like, a high school science teacher finds a thing of dry picric acid in the back of a closet. And then the bomb squad has to explode it, because there's no way to defuse it. You just kind of have to <laughs> blow it up in the soccer field. So you can find very entertaining videos of people blowing chunks out of the fucking football pitch behind a school to get rid of, like, old picric acid that's been sitting around for 15 years. This is the same generation that got to play with the insides of thermometers. Right, they just got to play with picric acid. Like I said, perfectly safe when wet. Definitely not safe when dry. There's also, like, a, a lot of very fun YouTube videos that are, like, news reports, and they are apologies for earlier explosions. They're like, ah, oh, yes, you, you may have noticed the high school blew up. That was picric acid. <laughs> so... Some very fun local news <laughs> reporting on the properties of picric acid, but it's it's probably not something you got to play with in high school if you're like thirty or younger. <laughs> it's you know, or if you're older than thirty and have all your fingers. So, in addition to twenty three hundred tons of picric acid, the ship was also carrying two hundred tons of TNT, thirty five tons of high octane benzol, which is a fuel. And ten tons of gun cotton, which is a fun, fluffy substance that is also a blasting explosive once commonly used in underwater warheads. Very fun. Gun cotton is also oh. a, a substitute for oh. gunpowder. It's look it up. It looks like cotton. It's like it's fun. It's fluffy. It'll blow your fucking fingers right off. But other than that, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine we have a lot of listeners who are, like, very experienced with munitions, shipping, and storage, but the numbers I just listed are insane. Like, Oh, they're fucking crazy. Big time insane. Nobody would ever put anything even approaching this quantity of explosives on one ship because of this disaster. Like, this disaster changed international shipping rules. It changed international laws about explosive storage. You cannot put 2,300 tons of picric acid. You can't put enough explosive payload to level a city on one ship. That's a no. That's a no from all of us. It's not allowed. It's bad. Like I said, they were quite literally carrying enough explosives to wipe out a small city. And they did. And the explosives they were carrying were far more volatile than what we would consider acceptable today. Especially to carry in that quantity. A lot of these things will explode if jostled, which... Makes a ship not an ideal choice. No, no not the most <laughs> stable environment. Actually, no, no. They're they're very sensitive to like temperature, humidity, and motion. So, boat. Let's do it. Oh no, they're just like me on a ship too. I'm also sensitive to <laughs> temperature, humidity, and jostling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm known to have the odd eruption myself. <laughs> Jessica is just like a sweaty stick of human dynamite. <laughs> Ready to explode. It, it's one of those things where, like, I genuinely do have very severe motion sickness. Like, I get nauseous on planes, trains, automobiles, uneven pavement, flickering lights. Like, that anything <laughs> will make me puke. But specifically being inside a ship is not good. <laughs> One time I was on a ferry on a rough day, and, like, it was packed. It was packed. Everyone was packed close together. But I still had a ring around me for ten feet. <laughs> just because of the color of my skin. 
<laughs> just a little green. Just an unhealthy pallor. TNT is actually like prized for how stable it is. Picric acid and TNT are very chemically closely related, but TNT is significantly more stable. But a thing to know about TNT is that over time, TNT will sweat nitroglycerin. That's basically all that TNT is. It's nitroglycerin that has been stabilized by absorbing it into clay. But over time, it will sweat and pool nitroglycerin at the bottom of the container. And this was like a staple of children's cartoons in the 90s. But if you jostle nitroglycerin, it'll explode. Fun fact, I don't know who needs to hear this. Hopefully fucking none of you. But if you happen to store TNT, you need to turn the container over periodically to reabsorb the nitroglycerin back into the clay. Or it'll pool at the bottom of the container and you're going to die. Like, slowly. Like, don't fucking shake it like it's a Christmas present. You know, like... If you're trying to fucking get your fortune. <laughs> I mean, it's you not will a get magic surprise. Your fortune is that you're going to die if you do that. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I can predict your future real good if you shake a box of nitroglycerin. Don't. 100%. But like, can you imagine being hired to work on one of these? Terrifying. Shows? Like, who the How fuck do you have you no kill? other options in your life? <laughs> what have you done? What did you do How with well the last How well does this pay that you're like, yeah, no, I will fucking ride what is essentially a gigantic Roman candle into an urban area? Like, no. <laughs> and in fairness, in fairness to the city of Halifax, ships carrying that amount of explosive payload would never have been allowed into the Halifax Harbor under normal circumstances. You could not just rock up to Halifax astride a giant bomb under normal circumstances but during World War One, it was way more dangerous to park that outside the harbor and potentially get it blown up by U-boats. So exceptions were made to allow boats with high explosive payloads into the Halifax Harbor. You know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So, <laughs> like, they played the odds, they took a balance of probabilities, and Unfortunately. they lost. <laughs> so when the Mont Blanc arrived at the Halifax Harbor on the evening of December 5th, the anti-submarine nets had already gone up for the night. Uh, a pilot named Francis Mackey boarded the Mont Blanc to assist her commander, Captain Aime Le Medic. I don't, I, when I first read this, I was like, wow, Francis Mackey does not sound French. It wasn't. But Mackey requested that the Mont Blanc be given special protections because of its payload. It requested that they have a guard ship to watch it overnight and to accompany it into the basin in the morning. Um, that it remained under military escort the entire time it was in Halifax. It seems like kind of a reasonable request, but the response was like, no, nah, let's just live dangerously. They denied the request for extra protections. No special protections or privileges were given. The ship just kind of had to wait by itself till the nets were lowered again. Yeah, like I said, li living dangerously. It's basically just an enormous city-leveling cherry bomb floating in your harbor, and you're like, yeah, alright, that's we'll take our chances. Hmm. We don't want to inconvenience a single military boat. Unthinkable. <laughs> if we die, we die, and that's 100% what happened. So at around 7.30am the next morning, on December 6th, 1917, the submarine nets were lowered, and both the SS Emo and the SS Mont Blanc headed into the Narrows. And right from the beginning, this whole thing was a perfect storm. As I've already mentioned, the SS Emo was a long, skinny vessel, which makes it more difficult to steer a boat under the best of circumstances. It's kind of like having a car with a really long hood. It's the same principle. It's hard to tell where you're going. 
it's difficult to steer it because the rudder is in the back. The SS Emo was also traveling, like I said, in ballast. It was empty. There was no cargo. Which meant that the boat was sitting higher on the water than it was actually designed to. Um, Cargo ships are not really designed to be empty. For the boat to run correctly, you have to have cargo in there. So you fill it with something called ballast. This is often just, you fill it with something worthless, basically, which you dispose of when you get to your destination. I've seen a couple different reports, but apparently the SS Emo either did not have ballast or it didn't have enough of it. So the boat was sitting too high on the water, which meant that the propeller and the rudder were partially out of the water. These things are not actually helpful for steering unless they are submerged. They are not designed to work above water. You have to fully submerge them to get full control of the boat. So the boat sitting too high on the water made it even more difficult to control. To complicate things further, the Emo was designed so that the propeller sat on the right side of the ship, on the starboard side. This gave the ship a transverse thrust. When you wanted to move forward, the ship would always veer to the left, and when the engines were in reverse, the ship would always veer to the right. I have no idea why this was designed this way. I don't know if there's an advantage to it. I am not I am not a shipwright. I don't design boats for a living. I have no idea. But this was, like, in the design of the ship. Also not an as- a- expert, and there must be some reason, but I was always just of an opinion you put them in the middle. Typically you do. Typically you do. I don't know why this one was different, but it was on the right and it had a transverse thrust, which you had to account for if you're trying to navigate the ship in tight quarters. This ship was basically like trying to steer a hot air balloon with a sponge. The ship is incredibly difficult to control, which is not what you want when you're in a strait that's only 440 meters wide. So the Emo was cleared to leave the Bedford Basin and enter the Narrows at 7.30am once the nets had been lowered. And the Emo entered the Narrows at well above the five-knot speed limit. They were trying to make up for the time that they lost by having to spend an extra night in Halifax, so they were very much speeding. Which, I mean, in their defense, is anything over a light jog. I mean, yeah. I've never actually seen a report of how fast they were going. I don't know. Ships don't exactly have a black box. Just blazing by at 15 miles per hour. People who survived and were kind of... I mean, the part of the crew of the Emo did survive the explosion, but they were speeding. That's all that I can tell you. After entering the Narrows, the Emo encountered the SS Clara, which was a slutty American tramp steamer, which was traveling the wrong way up the strait. Like I said, when you were going from the harbor into the basin, you were supposed to stay on the starboard side and hug the Dartmouth coastline. So when the SS... Emo was leaving the basin, it was supposed to hug the Halifax side. But the SS Clara, that skanky tramp, was going the wrong way. She was traveling on the Halifax side. The SS Emo veered over to the Dartmouth side, and the ships agreed to pass starboard to starboard, the opposite way of what they were supposed to do. So basically, they were in the wrong lane. There's basically two lanes in the strait. They are now in the wrong lane. So, this is a significantly more embarrassing version of every time your grandma tries to go get groceries. Basically, and this is also why I say we can partially blame the Americans for what happened, because it was an American boat that initially put the SS Emo on the wrong side of the strait. Just some stupid American slut. Americans. Bah! But after successfully passing the SS Clara without incident, the SS Emo then encountered a small tugboat called the Stella Maris, which was towing two small barges, traveling up the center of the Narrows, which it also was not. What the fuck? 
fuck? R- nobody's <laughs> fucking going the correct way. I don't know why this is so hard. But when the Stella Maris saw the emo approaching way too fast on the Dartmouth side, they veered to the Halifax side. So I think the plan when they were traveling central was they were going to like duck into the correct lane when another boat was there. Because they're towing two boats, they're, they're quite wide. Instead, since the emo was like barreling down the Dartmouth lane, they steered over to the Halifax side. And in response, in order to stay clear of the tugboat, the emo went even closer to Dartmouth. So they're now basically hugging the Dartmouth coast and they are 100% going the wrong way. At the same time the emo was barreling up the wrong side of the Narrows, the Mont Blanc had entered the Narrows on the correct side and was heading for the Bedford Basin. The SS Mont Blanc was a much slower ship than the emo, and it was traveling up the Dartmouth coastline when it saw the SS emo bearing down on it from the wrong direction, three quarters of a mile away. So it's close, and they're, they're bound for a collision. The Mont Blanc blew a warning blast on its horn, which signaled that they had the right of way and that the emo needed to yield. The emo sent back two horn blasts, which signaled that they would not yield. Oh no. Oh yeah, it's not good. The Mont Blanc then cut her engines and sent back another blast, again asserting that she had the right of way. The Mont Blanc was not a fast ship, it wasn't particularly maneuverable, and they're carrying fucking explosives. Oh, they're they're not they're heavy. They're in the right lane, too. The Mont Blanc was going the correct way, it was in the correct place where it was supposed to be. And they're cashew flavored. This is terrible. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Did you think we'd get this far without me mentioning Mont Blanc pastries? <laughs> I, I don't. But in response, the emo also cut her engines, but she sent back another two horn blasts, again refusing to yield. So we've got two boats with no engines just drifting towards each other. Head on, basically. So by this point, nearby sailors, dock workers, and Haligonians had stopped what they were doing to watch the actions, and that is what you call somebody from Halifax. It's the worst fucking name. We're Haligonians. I don't know why. We're not Halifaxians. We're not Halifaxites. We are Haligonians. There's a G in there now. Haligonian admittedly sounds like either some type of alien or a kind of noble gas. <laughs> I've always thought, yeah, it sounds like some sort of hill tribe that like emerges like from our tunnels. It does kind of. No, I could see noble gas. I'll, I'll, I'll accept it. But basically, boat horns are loud. And this is basically the boat equivalent of a chicken fight. These are boats just blasting back and forth being like, move, no, you move, no. So it's 1917. There's nothing else to do. People are going to like watch shit go down. They can see that these boats are drifting towards each other. And they know that they're both signaling that they're not going to move. When you hear boat horns all the time, you kind of gather what they mean. It's December of 1917 in Halifax. Watching ships play bumper cars in the harbor is like the best form of entertainment you're going to find. And by this point in the morning, when the ships are bearing down on each other, Halifax is kind of like waking up. This is now past 8.30 in the morning. People are heading off to work, children are on their way to school, uh, work at the docks was already, like, well underway for the day. <laughs> yes, very romantic, Jessica. <laughs> I feel like I'm playing a late 90s Sierra game. Just a typical, wholesome morning. It was! beautiful Halifax. <laughs> it was, like, there was a sugar factory in Halifax and all the employees gathered on the roof to watch these boats, like, play chicken. 
But of course, in all of this, nobody had any idea that the Mont Blanc was packed to the gunwale with explosives. Cargo ships were in and out of the harbor all day. If we worried about what was in each of them, we'd lose our fucking minds. Cargo ships carry everything you can possibly imagine. For all they knew, the ships were filled with, like, pants or live turkeys or, like, just left shoes. They carry everything. (laughs) So nobody figured, like, this is a giant ship full of explosives. We're all about to die. Yeah, they don't usually put that on the side. <laughs> no. Like, there's no Belgian relief equivalent of just a big fucking bomb with a rudder. <laughs> yeah, that makes you a bit of a target, so no. But even though both ships had cut their engines, they're still drifting toward each other, and it was clear that if they did nothing, they were going to collide. So the pilot of the Mont Blanc, Francis McKee, did not want to run the ship aground on the Dartmouth shore. They could have veered further to the right and just run aground, if the ship had been empty, that would have been an option. But if you are carrying enough explosives to level a city, it's generally not advisable that you crash your boat on purpose. If they tried to beach the Mont Blanc, he was concerned that he would set off the explosives. Instead, he ordered the Mont Blanc to steer hard to port, hoping to pass by the emo starboard to starboard by veering onto the Halifax side and avoiding a collision. The Mont Blanc did, they veered hard to port, and they pulled up alongside the Emo so that the two ships were parallel, starboard to starboard. And for a moment, it looked like the two ships were going to pass by each other without incident. And then, the Emo gave three blasts of the horn, which indicated it was about to reverse engines. The pilot of the Emo, however, didn't properly account for the fact that the ship was empty and sitting high on the water, and that it had a transverse thrust. So when they reversed their propeller, instead of going straight backwards, the Emo swung hard to starboard, crashing into the Mont Blanc at a brisk 1.5 miles an hour. That's seriously all it takes to cause the greatest maritime disaster in human history. They were going approximately 1.5 miles an hour. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm dead serious. Just a really, 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 really slow head-on collision. (laughs) They they were drifting, but the two boats collided with each other at 8.45am. And the actual collision did not cause catastrophic damage to the Mont Blanc. It did not explode on impact. Instead, what happened was the Mont Blanc had barrels of benzol, which is a very high-octane fuel used for explosives, strapped to the deck. They were up on the deck. I have no idea how any of these men felt safe at any point. They have explosives literally everywhere. I would be sweating constantly. My god. I, I would be slick. I would be more liquid than man. Benzol is very similar to like a high-octane gasoline. It's not benzene. The, the names are, are similar, but it's... I mean, it's close. So it's, it's a high-octane fuel. When the two ships collided, the force of the collision caused some of the barrels to break free and burst on the deck. So they spilled benzol across the deck and down into the hold. The emo then pulled backwards to disengage from the Mont Blanc. As it did so, the scraping created sparks inside the Mont Blanc that ignited the benzol fumes and started a fire in the hull. But the flames apparently started at the waterline and leapt up the sides of the ship. And the fire pretty much reached a point of being uncontrollable immediately. Like from the moment this fire started, they had no chance of getting this under control. The instant the captain realized the ship was on fire, he gave the order to abandon ship immediately. Which was, you know, sensible. Actually, all but one crew member of the Mont Blanc survived the explosion. They bailed out. (laughs) Smart! They're just like, well. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no fixing that. They they know what they're carrying. They know that it shouldn't be on fire. Yeah. Oh. No, they they see one spark. Cause that's that's the thing. If I saw one spark that entire time, it might just be the like the glint of the sun off the water. I am jumping. <laughs> if I see one fucking person lighting a cigarette on this goddamn boat, I'm gonna throw you in the ocean. <laughs> like I wonder if they were allowed to smoke on the ship. I imagine they did. I'm, it was 1917. Oh, 100% all the time. I'm sure people like leaned on the barrels of benzol just chain smoking. They probably sat on them on their break. <laughs> awesome. Somebody's just like ashing their fucking cigarette on top of a barrel of explosives. Wonderful. <laughs> um, at this point, the the ship's on fire. It was like quite a fire. This is more than just a regular wooden boat fire. And people in Halifax and Dartmouth basically stopped whatever they were doing just to watch it. The fire was throwing up like small explosions like fireworks as it burned. This is very similar to what we saw in the Beirut explosion. Like there was there was little pops and small explosions going off as it hit new sources of fuel and as it burned. And people were just mesmerized by the sight of this boat fire. It was Oh no. Yeah. So everybody's, like, gathering on to the docks to watch the fire. People are stopping what they're doing to watch it. The crew of the Mont Blanc piled into their lifeboats and began to frantically row for the Dartmouth shore because that's where they were closest. As they rowed, they tried to shout warnings to passersby that the ship was a munition ship and that it was going to explode. But the sounds... Oh, no. The booms of the small explosions coming from the ship completely drowned them out. So nobody could hear them screaming warnings at people from Dartmouth. <laughs> the other problem, too, is that the crew bailed out to Dartmouth, but without anybody steering it, the Mont Blanc drifted across the Narrows to the Halifax side, where it came to rest against Pier 6 at the end of Richmond Street in the north end of the city. So they're not even in the right place to warn people. The people in Dartmouth don't need to worry the same way. The, no, they had some damage from the explosion. I think they had a hundred casualties. Like a hundred people died in the in the explosion itself. But Halifax had sixteen hundred deaths on on impact. When the Mont Blanc came to rest against Pier Six, there was concern that it was going to set the pier on fire. So the Stella Maris, which was the tugboat that had been traveling up the middle of the Narrows, parked the boats it had been towing, and it was the first to respond to the fire. It attempted to use its hose to put out the fire. But they realized very quickly that one dinky little tugboat hose was just not going to cut it. The flames were like 500. <laughs> Seriously. The like David versus Goliath firefighter edition. Yeah, the, the flames were 500 feet high at the at the worst point of the fire, according to eyewitness testimony. I, I, bet, I bet that felt hot. And yeah, like firefighters couldn't even get close to it because of how hot it was. Oh, you, you'd, you'd start to cook 500 feet away. <laughs> Well, and, and their biggest priority was just, we need to not set the pier on fire. Oh, shit. That's all they were really concerned about. The boat can burn itself out on the ocean, whatever. But they realized that they weren't going to get this fire under control with a tugboat hose. So two other ships, a whaler called the HMS High Flyer and a steam pinnace called the HMCS Niobe, which is a Canadian ship. A steam penis? No. Steam penis is a steam penis. Anybody can have a steam penis. A, a steam <laughs> pinnace. Is uh is just uh, a type... Canadian steam penis. That's what I said. The Canadian, the Canadian steam penis. Wow. <laughs> I'm so glad I put a mature warning on this podcast. 
I mean, we probably need an immature warning if we're to be entirely honest with ourselves. No, a pinnace is a light merchant boat, often propelled by sails. Um, but this is this was what the Canadians had. So a, a boat that has the initials... Just a whole bunch of tramps and penises out here. Steam penises. The best kind. And steam tramps. No more of this wood-burning penis. Absolutely not. Sail-powered penis? I think no. For all my penis needs, I trust steam. <laughs> no, uh... Just some steamy penises. Just a note on, on boat initials. Any ship that starts with HMS is a British vessel. That's Her Majesty's uh, ship. Her Majesty's ship. Her Majesty's, or in 1917, His Majesty's. Queen Elizabeth is somehow not quite that old. Yeah, this is still her granddad. And an HMCS is a Canadian vessel. That is Her Majesty's Canadian ship. Because it's still the Ooh. Queen's. Still belongs to her. <laughs> she has all the boats. She has so many boats. <laughs> Nobody can have any boats. Except the Queen. You can't play with the ball, Liz. The bath isn't big enough. <laughs> the main priority, though, was to get this burning ship away from the pier. So that like they could deal with the fire once it was away from the pier. And there was no danger of, like setting Halifax on fire. It was agreed that the HMCS Naobi would attach a line to the burning ship and then try to tow it free from the pier to prevent the pier from catching. The hawser, which is a thick cable or rope that is used for towing ships, that was on board the HMCS Naobi was not thick enough to tow a ship the size of the Mont Blanc, so the Stella Maris attempted to assist by providing their own hawser, a sailor had gone below deck of the Stella Maris to retrieve it, but he never actually got the chance. Because it was at that moment, with no warning, at 9.04 and 35 seconds, on the morning of December 6th, 1917, the deadly cargo on board the SS Mont Blanc exploded, triggering one of the largest non-nuclear explosions the world has ever known. And that is as far as we're gonna go with part one. Of the Halifax explosion. Exciting! Leaving off the climax. If you want death, destruction, and punctured eyeballs, you're gonna have to come back for part two. Lots. It's, so many. Part two is gonna be a lot. I'm warning you now. It's, it's gonna be a lot. The Halifax explosion was very powerful, and you just, you simply can't release that kind of boat shrapnel into an urban center without having some incredibly gross stories as a result. They know the exact time because so many watches stopped. 9.04.35, that is when clocks stopped on the north side. It is one of the greatest maritime disasters in human history. It's one of the worst explosions in human history. It's one of the worst accidents. Did, did it affect the weather at all? Yes! Interesting. We'll talk about that next time, I guess. We're going to talk about Halifax's only tsunami. Ever. Whee! Which I think would have gotten my house wet, and I don't live anywhere near the ocean. So, <laughs> I mean, like, relatively speaking, I do. I can walk there, but I'm, I'm not looking at the Atlantic right now, I'll tell you that. In, <laughs> so, in, so, in some ways, all of Halifax is near the ocean, quote-unquote. I, yeah, I live close to the ocean in that, like, I can physically go there now if I really wanted to. Yeah, like, the ocean for me is a 15-minute walk. But if I'm- I don't live in Edmonton anymore. Like, the ocean is not, like, a plane ride away. But yeah, we're, we're gonna talk about just how much of the city was destroyed and what the city did to rebuild. There's- there's gonna be some hope. Because obviously it did, because I live in a building. And I don't- I don't live in a steaming field of hundred-year-old wreckage. 
So, <laughs> you, Janelle does not, in fact, live in a greasy blackened smear. I, I do not. I have a home. I have a roof. Uh, you'd never know from walking around today that this this used to be a greasy blackened smear. So, but yeah, I hope you have learned a great deal about boating and trip steamers. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed. I think what was one of our punniest episodes thus far. Uh, uh. Uh, I this has been fe- uh, sorry. I've been Jessica. <laughs> I've been either a person or a podcast. I can't decide. <laughs> I'm a bit confused. I have been Jessica. I'm pretty and sure. I have been Janelle. And we are fat, fat French, French, and fabulous. fabulous.